You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the lead pastor for Kingsway. And if you're visiting with us today, we are so glad that you are joining us. You are coming in in the very last message in a series that we began on Easter Sunday. And it's all about how do we live free in Jesus Christ? Well, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in my family room. We're still in the midst of that quarantine thing, and I'm watching my kids. And I sense the Spirit whisper to me, Matt, you're writing a series all about pausing and reflecting before this quarantine is over, before you go back to normal life, and what lessons to learn. Why don't you try practicing what you preach? So I put down my iPad, I put down my cell phone, I, I just stopped working in that moment, and I just started to watch my boys. I have three sons at home, 11, 9, and 6 years old, and I love them each dearly. They, all three, have dramatically different personalities. And I often get caught up in playing with them and talking with them and feeding them and taking care of them and wrestling with them and sometimes correcting them and being a dad and all the things that a dad entails. But in this moment, I just watched them play together and a smile crept across my face and I literally, literally began to delight in their personalities. Just the unique way that God has fashioned each of them. All three of my sons has a unique story. They each have unique challenges that they will have to overcome in life. They each have unique gift sets and abilities that God will use and grow in each of them. And I'm watching them play together. And I'm just, I have this giddiness in my stomach just watching them. It just brought me so much joy. And I remembered all of a sudden the spirit brought to mind this verse. And it was in my head. I had to go look it up. I didn't know where it was. It's in Zephaniah 3.17. And in Zephaniah 3.17, God says that he will delight in his people, Israel. He will delight in his children. And he'll actually sing a song over them. And for a moment, I had a brief picture of what Jesus experienced every time he came into the Father's presence. Throughout this quarantine, I've just been reading a lot, listening to a lot, studying a lot. I'm so excited. Like, I feel like my brain is filled with all these ideas that I just want to share with you. But one of the things that God has impressed upon me is the fact that Jesus can't wait to be with his heavenly father. Jesus really was unique in history that he shows up and he calls God his father. Not just Lord Almighty or any of those other names that we might think of when we think of God. He calls him father. And he has a relationship with his father that truly is unique and special. Now, what's fascinating to me is the disciples come to Jesus and they say, will you teach us how to pray? John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Will you teach us also how to pray? And Jesus does that. And we see this in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6. And Jesus says, he starts his prayer out, Luke, or sorry, Matthew 6, verse 9. He starts it out in this way. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Jesus began his prayer teaching us how to pray by basically saying, pray like me. And when Jesus called God Father, and now he's telling you and he's telling me to call God Father, he stripped away a lot of the religiosity that we envision as a barrier between us and God. He stripped it away and said, you're walking up into a relationship with a real being who wants to be with you. He wants to delight in you. He wants to sing a song over you. When he looks at you, he experiences probably infinitely more the kind of joy that I felt in that moment looking at my own sons. 
It's no wonder then that Jesus wakes up early in the morning while it's still dark to be with his father. Sometimes even after long, exhausting days of ministry, he gets up early. He sacrifices sleep, not as a duty, but because when he comes into that place, he knows there's something powerful and special there just for him. What I've said throughout the series is Jesus intends to give us a new identity. And I think he's giving it to us because it's what he has and the Father all along. He knows where he's loved and cared for and adored. And I realize that image of God may break down for some of you. Those of you who maybe have a broken relationship with your own earthly dad sometimes makes it hard for you to understand your heavenly father. If your dad was overly demanding, you couldn't please him. Perhaps you sometimes struggle with viewing your dad in the same way. Or if your dad never seemed to have time for you, is always too busy doing something else more important to him, I imagine that sometimes, for some of you, you tell me, it's hard for you to envision God as a, as a, as a father who has time for you. And the list could go on and on and on. Perhaps if your dad never blessed you, never spoiled you, never cared for you, never met your needs, whatever it is, never bandaged up your wounds, Therefore, God can't do that either. But God isn't like your earthly dad. I hope one day my kids could say that God was a lot like their earthly dad. But look, I'm not perfect either. And I know all the ways that I struggle to represent a holy, heavenly father to them. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus says next. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is literally the Greek word hagiastito. <laughs> Hoping I'm saying that right. Hagias is actually the Greek word for holy. Theto just kind of lets us know the designation of the word itself. It's an ending. It literally means to be holy or set apart. Now, the thing about this is the word holy is kind of lost its meaning in our culture. We have holy cows running around, right? And the other day, like I grew up watching Batman. The other day, I, I, I like to say things like, for instance, if uh, we were cleaning the house, me and my boys trying to bless my wife. And I was like, holy shoes on the ground, Batman. And the kids are looking at me and they're like, what in the world? Why do you say stuff like that, Dad? Well, when I was growing up, for those of you who didn't watch Batman in my generation, right? Batman or Robin would, would say holy everything. And they would just kind of throw it in there. Well, exactly, right? So holy kind of lost has lost some meaning because we've attached it to so many things out there. There's holy rollers somewhere. There's holier than thou somewhere. And then there's other items. So moving on. But the whole idea of the word holy, whether it's the Hebrew word kadosh or the Greek word hagias, the whole concept, the idea of the word holy is that it's something set apart from what is common or ordinary or more specifically worldly. You might use the word secular, but... Let's just give an example. In the Old Testament, let's say that you were going to make sacrifices in the Old Testament temple. In order to make the sacrifices, you would have to pull out a knife. Let's say you were to have a nice brand new set of knives and you were to take one of those knives, you would make it holy. You would set it apart from the other knives. Those could go be used for common things, normal cooking or cleaning and whatever else hunting you might do with a knife. But this particular knife, it's going to be set apart. It's going to be different. It's going to be holy because it's going to be set apart for God and for God's purposes. How do we get then out of this word, 
hallowed be your name. I mean, who did God, or who set apart God for holiness? And the answer is no one. God is just holy. He is separate, set apart, different from what is common or regular or worldly. Let me take a, a passage and show this to you. Perhaps the clearest passage where this is revealed. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. God says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. The distance between Beetlegeist, the distance between some distant nebula and us here, the distance between whatever the furthest thing you could think of out there, whatever galaxy or whatever we know of out there, the, some void or something, the distance there is representative of the distance between God's ways and our ways, God's thoughts and our thoughts. Why? Because he is not like this world. Did you know there's only three places in the entire Bible where that word hallowed is used. Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. Luke 11, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And then there's one more passage, and I'm going to show you to you in a second. Let me set this passage up. This is at the end of the book of Revelation, so it's at the very end of the Bible. And an angel is talking to John, the writer of Revelation, and he's communicating kind of like the last few words to him that he needs to know and he needs to write down. When John sees this angel, he falls on his face, as many people do when they see angels. He's afraid, and he begins to worship the angel. And the angel's like, dude, no. <laughs> me, not him. Don't worship me. I'm not him. I'm a servant of him just like you. Maybe not literally just like you. Angels and humans are different. But he's trying to let them know, like, you don't want to worship me. You want to worship him. He's hallowed. But that's not where the word is used. It's used in the phrase that the angel speaks to John. And here's that phrase, Revelation 22, verse 10. It says this, Then he, the angel, this is John writing, Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of prophecy of the scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. And it's that phrase right there where the word hallowed is used. Let the holy person hallowed. Well, the reason we don't translate it hallowed is because context is king. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6, he's saying, first, he's your father, but realize he's your father who's in heaven. And while he's your father in heaven, he doesn't think like a human thinks. He thinks like a God who is holy and separate and set apart from what this world thinks. But then when we get to Revelation, the last chapter here in the last book of the Bible, and it closes out and it calls you hallowed, calls me hallowed. Why? Don't get a big head here. You're not God. The Bible never says that you are God or will become God. But the Bible does say many times that if you are fully trained, you will become like your teacher, Jesus. The point here is that we who have come to God in faith through Jesus Christ, that we will actually live out our faith by being different than the very world that we live in. 
See, I've often said this when I've taught on holiness, that while the word holy has lost meaning, it's like a two-sided coin. On the head side of the coin, what we have is the idea that God has made us holy. This is actually what we talked about on Easter Sunday. We talk about imputation. I've brought this up a few times. If you weren't here, it's okay. I'm explaining it. That when Jesus on Good Friday died on the cross, for all who come to faith, he took upon himself in the cross all of our sin, all of our sin and the sin that others have done to us. He took it on the cross for all who receive him in faith. And when he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, what he did was he gave us his life. So he took our worst, gave us his best, and what that did then is it set us apart. It made us different than what is common or ordinary or worldly. It set us apart specifically for God and for God's purposes. So now when God looks at you, he sees a new identity. He sees one marked with Jesus himself. He sees one made anew, afresh, alive in him. And that's so important for you. It's so important for me. It's what allows Jesus to get on his knees early in the morning while it's still dark and he's tired and exhausted and say, Father, hallowed be your name. But here's the other side of that coin. The other side of the coin is that while God has marked you as holy in Jesus for himself, you still have to live holiness, otherness, differentness set-apartness for God. It's still something that you do throughout your life. In fact, we are really only holy to the degree in which we act holy and live set-apart lives for God. If you come to faith in Jesus and he sets you free by the blood of Jesus, but nothing in your life changes. Don't be surprised if you don't ever feel the freedom of Jesus. Again, as we've talked throughout the series, many of you who still aren't experiencing freedom, it's because there's still something that we've talked about that's not being fully applied to you. Maybe it's the truth of Jesus' teachings and who God is and it's not being fully applied in your life. Or maybe it's the new identity of Jesus Christ that he has given you in himself and on his death, burial, and resurrection. And you're not fully living out of it. You're living out of your previous lifestyle and your old ways. Or maybe it's the fact that you haven't fully repented and walked away from a sin in your life and experienced the new life in Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's that you haven't gone to somebody and, and sought forgiveness for something that you've done. Or maybe they haven't released you yet from something that you've done and the list goes on and on right but the idea of freedom comes because we receive it from God and then we live it in this world this is exactly what Peter's trying to get to in first Peter chapter 1 verse 13 he says this therefore with minds that are fully alert and fully sober in other words we're not going to be drunk we're not going to be using medications or drugs. We're not going to be overwhelmed with anything. We're going to have fully alert and sober minds because we realize that the world we're in is separate from God and his ways. It is opposed to him. Perhaps your very parents and what they taught you growing up are opposed to God. It doesn't line up with him. And so we want to keep an, a level-headed mind about the process of who God is and what he wants to do in the world as we evaluate every decision. Peter says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. In other words, our hope isn't in this world. We're not putting our hope in a, 
you know, uh, whatever, a vaccine or a medicine that's going to get rid of this disease. We're not putting our hope in the government sending us checks. We're not going to put our hope in anything in this world. We're going to put our hope in Jesus Christ and the grace to be revealed when he returns. As obedient children, he says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. You are holy, so be holy. Be what you are. Being free, therefore, means living as God would live if he were in your situation. If God were in your shoes, working with your boss, your co-workers, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your enemies, what would he do? And this is where the quote-unquote rubber meets the road, right? It's easy to theoretically talk about God and how he's different and special and set apart and other than, but the moment it comes down, to me living for him in a way that hurts or is painful or takes sacrifice, that is where the real test of the validity of our faith comes from. I was listening to a great sermon by uh, Timothy Keller. And you guys know that I quote him a lot and I read a lot of his books and I really enjoy uh, Pastor Keller. But he used this phenomenal illustration and I took this from him. He used the illustration when talking about holiness of David and his mighty men. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. We actually see it in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 13 through 16. I'll just tell you what it says. It's actually just a few verses there, but the story you got to unpack is so good. David is in a cave, and he's way away from Bethlehem, the city of David, later become the city of David, the, the city where Jesus is actually born, the city of Bethlehem. And he's way away from there. And one day, he just kind of groans. He basically sighs. He basically takes this deep breath and he says, oh, man, what I would give for some water from the wells in Bethlehem. Now, David had these mighty men. And this little section, chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, you should read it. It tells about some of their exploits. These were some tough dudes. You would not want to get in a fight with one of the mighty men. One of these dudes fought for so hard or for so long, the sword actually became frozen to his hand. He couldn't undo the sword from his hand. He just kept whooping everybody. Well, a few of these guys get this idea. Why don't we go get David water from the well? So they literally cross over this desert area from where they're hiding. They get to the city of Bethlehem. When they get there, they have to fight off whatever Philistine soldiers are there guarding the city. They get into the city because we know from um, excavation and stuff, we know that the actual, uh, whatever it is, I'm drawing a complete blank, the well <laughs> is inside the city gates. So now they got to fight into the city. Then a couple of them have to fight off the bad guys, the Philistine army, while one of them draws water from the well. Then they got to fight their way back out of the city. Then they have to cross through the arid places and not drink the water on their way back. And then they get to David and they present to him this water and they say, here you go, king. Here's some water from the well inside of Bethlehem. And David pours one out for his homies. Man, I love that story. He literally takes it and dumps it on the ground. He won't drink it. Now we read that. We go, what in the world are you thinking? But David understood the great risk that these men went through just to satisfy a desire of David's. And here's where this connects to us. 
See, living a holy life means we can't distinguish between a command and a sigh. Do you get it? See, when we talk about holiness, some of us get real hung up real fast on all the things we can't do or all the things we have to do, and we miss the real heart of it. Do you ever have your kids, for those of you who maybe have kids or had younger kids, do you have your kids obey you and the only reason they obey you is because you threaten to ground them or discipline them or take away something from them or give them something and the only reason they did it is because of that threat and not out of deep love and desire to please you? See, these men loved David. And while that may have made no sense to David, what he did that was worthy of this kind of love and affection and adoration, this is what God longs for in his people. This is the heart of holiness. Not that we have to do something, but that we get to do something. We get to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. We get to live out God's kingdom here. And we get to explore all the ways and facets we might please our heavenly father. In that sermon that I referenced, I was listening to, Timothy Keller says this, when you are totally devoted to somebody, the pleasure of giving them pleasure becomes greater than the pleasure of taking pleasure. I love that. Like, I had to listen to him say that a few times. I'm gonna read it again. Even though I know it's on the screen, you can see it. I wanna read that again. When you are totally devoted to somebody, the pleasure of giving them pleasure becomes greater than the pleasure of taking pleasure. And then he says, and their very sighs become your glad compulsion. In other words, remember David? David just going, oh man, what I would give, what I would give. Jesus had one of these. He's standing at a distance and he's looking over at the city of Jerusalem and he sighs and he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how many times I've longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks. Oh, how I've longed to care for you, how I've longed to protect you. Man, I wonder if we could be David's mighty men or women. If we could be Jesus's mighty men or women. Would we run under his care? Would we let him protect us and watch over us and care for us and identify us and meet our needs and stop trying to exhaust ourselves running around trying to please everybody and do enough and be enough but instead just to take a breath and climb up in dad's lap and to live for him. Keller says, you want to know what delights them? And you see their desires and their delights as commands, glad commands, joyous commands, total devotion. To be wholly devoted to God goes way beyond rules. It goes way beyond keeping codes. It's a whole orientation of heart that goes way beyond God's commands and even way beyond God's requests. It yearns and stretches out to see anything that God prefers and wants. And Revelation says, that's you. And that's me. Hallowed. Just like our Heavenly Father. That means for each of us, in our unique situations, wherever we are in life, whatever we're dealing with, to continually ask the question, 
what pleases my Father here? Or perhaps you can pray it the way Jesus taught us to pray it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was on to us all along. He knew our desperate need to identify with a good father, become like him, and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Here's what I've learned. I'm 43. I grew up at a Christian home. I've been hearing Christian stories and passages and teachings my entire life. Since this quarantine began, I would guess, and I'm probably over this, I would guess I'm into the hundred hours or so of more teachings. And here's the thing. Man, I've only scratched the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge and the beauty and the glory and the grace of God. I get the feeling that the reason Jesus is giving us eternal life is because we are going to need every ounce of eternity just to be able to come to wrap our simple minds around just how big and beautiful and glorious and otherly, holy, hallowed he truly is. So don't be surprised as you sit there today watching this, taking this in, and the Spirit is moving in you and stirring in you. Don't be surprised if you don't know yet what to do with it. When you come to Jesus in faith, what you're doing is beginning a relationship where you're putting your faith and your trust in Him to grow you, to reveal to you, to show you. That's why you're starting at repentance and saying, God, I don't even know yet all the ways that I need to align my heart to you. But every time you reveal it to me, I'll do it. I'll surrender. I'm all in. Why? Because I have to? This begrudging, oh, I got to do it again? No, because I get to. I get to live for you. And when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he has come to give you life to the full. That's what he's referring to. That when you get to that place of living for God out of devotion and love and gratitude, you will find the life that really is life. Remember Isaiah 55, where God said, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. He closes that chapter in Isaiah with this idea about those who walk with him, those who live devoted to him, here's what it will be like for them. Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And I know Old Testament poetry and prophecy could be weird and confusing. What do I do with it? What God is trying to say is, see the people in that day who are receiving these prophecies, through the rest of Isaiah, they're being rebuked because they, they refused to be holy and set apart for God. And they were chosen by God to be that very thing, but they didn't want anything to do with it. And now God is saying, if you will follow my will, if you will follow my ways, if you Will come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest for your souls. And what will happen is the path towards life, the path toward peace will open before you. 
How do I find freedom in God? That's it right there. Listen, if you're sitting at home and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you right now. It's not too late. We've seen a number of people surrender to Jesus Christ even in the middle of this quarantine. And they're beginning to walk in this new life, in this new relationship, and grow in their walk with God. At any time, you can simply text the number 317-565-4911 and just text the word CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T. We will reach out to you and we will walk you into a relationship with God that will be a beginning of the most beautiful thing that you've ever experienced. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray over you and then we're going to lift up our voices and sing to God who has so set us free from darkness that the darkness trembles in his presence and we sing for joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may our words be few. God, may you bless us now in your presence. May we come to know and understand just how loved and adored we are. May you sing over us in delight, Father, because we live for you. We love you. We need you. God, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of all of our sins, God, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And let us, God, not be led into temptation by the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.